Acts 12.25 through Acts 13, verse 4. And as we do every Sunday, let's read together. And let's read God's word aloud. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. And they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Shall we pray? Father, help us this morning to come to a greater understanding of your word. As we now ask for the outpouring and blessing and anointing of your Holy Spirit upon each and every person in this room today. May you grant us, O oh God, your wisdom and your grace. May we have understanding, Lord, in this instruction as we take this time to hear from you, Lord. May we be attentive to every word that you have to speak to our hearts, that we, Lord God, may be better servants of your kingdom. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You all may be seated. When we began our study in the book of Acts, which was January of 2007, by the way, just for anybody that was curious. <laughs> but when we began our study in the book of Acts, our attention was centered on the commission given to the apostles by Jesus as to the preaching of the gospel and to the source of the power to accomplish that declaration. And of course, we turn to the key verse in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that says, and this is Jesus speaking to his disciples when he says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, consequently, chapters 1 through 7 of Acts comprise the first section of the book of Acts, which concerns the preaching of the gospel in Jerusalem, where the foundation was laid for a biblically healthy as well as a theologically healthy church. In chapters 8 through 12, uh, that uh, made up the second section of the book, telling of the Spirit's work in Judea and Samaria, those areas just beyond Jerusalem. And finally, beginning here in chapter 13, we have the expansion, in other words, the increase, the extension and the spreading out of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the end of the earth. And so you see uh, all three areas that uh, Jesus had mentioned to be covered are now uh, in, in sight. And, and this... Uh, chapter here, beginning this last section of the book of Acts, is dealing with taking the gospel to the end of the earth, what we know as the entire Roman world of that time. Now some have called this the beginning of the missionary era. Other significant changes occur in arriving at chapter 13. Peter is no longer prominent as he, as he was throughout the first 12 chapters. At this point, Paul's ministry will be emphasized. Another change is one that actually extends back to Jesus' time and his manner of preaching. The emphasis changes from ministry in rural conditions, uh, the village culture as it were, to preaching in the dominant environment of the Greek Roman city structure. Now that's not to say that preaching in rural towns and villages ended, but, but the weight of ministry fell on a more urban environment. As you go through the book of Acts, at least 40 different cities are mentioned here. Uh, 
which include those already mentioned so far, Jerusalem, Samaria, Damascus, Caesarea, and Antioch. And by the way, Samaria is, is not only just a region, but there was also a city called Samaria. So this was all part of the then known world. Acts 13 tw- uh, through 28, serving as a lesson in ancient geography. And a very accurate lesson in ancient geography. So consider then what Paul was able to write about, uh, or to write by, about the year 56 AD. Because here he's writing to the Roman church. And in Romans 15, verses 17 through 21, he says, Therefore I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God. And I want you to notice the emphasis of Paul's writing when he talks about doing things unto the glory of God and not unto man. He says, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God, for I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in, my, in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient in mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. So now, uh, you know, he gives uh, some sense of, of, of uh, the broadness of, of, of the scope of his ministry. Not just Jerusalem, but now all the way out to Rome, Illyricum, and, and other places. And he goes on to say, And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he, has, uh, to whom he was not announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. And so there was now a new beginning, as it were, as we come to chapter 13, a new beginning, a new ministry, and a new spiritual center. You see, for the first 12 chapters, we saw the center of all activity from Jerusalem. But we know what is going to take place after these particular accounts. Jerusalem is, is uh, the, the, the Christians are being persecuted, so they begin to spread out, taking the gospel to other areas. That's already happened so far in our study. Uh, later on, eventually, by the time you get to A.D. 70, then the Jews themselves are going to be scattered out from uh, Jerusalem because of the uh, uh, destruction of, of the city of Jerusalem by uh, Titus and the Roman armies. And so now the center of activity for the church is Antioch. And then, of course, Paul is in Antioch. We pick up in in verse 25 of the last chapter, and it says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. And they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Barnabas, Saul, and John Mark, as they got, uh, you know, they, they're bringing John Mark from Jerusalem. Barnabas, Saul, and John Mark were obviously now in our, in our account here back at the church in Antioch, having returned from their relief mission. That mission was to deliver a gift of support to the Jerusalem church during a time of famine. If you remember back in Acts chapter 11, and I'll remind you as a point of review here in verses 27 through 30, it says in Acts 11:27, and in those, and in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. And then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. And then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And so you see, they went on this mission to take this particular uh, offering, relief offering, to uh, Jerusalem. But there is a lot that we can learn from verse 25, even before we enter into chapter 13 about finding the leading of the Holy Spirit. Finding the leading of the Holy Spirit. First of all, Barnabas and Saul were actively involved in serving the Lord. 
And I believe that we need to be actively involved in serving the Lord when we want to find the leading of the Holy Spirit. But more importantly, Barnabas and Saul were willing and available to take this offering to Jerusalem. Now, again, I emphasize the fact that they were willing and available to serve the Lord. And that's how we need to be in serving the Lord. That's how we need to be in seeking to find that leading of the Holy Spirit. That we are willing and available to do that which we've been called. So you think about Barnabas and Saul here, willing and available to take this offering to Jerusalem. Well, you have to remember that traveling was difficult and it was dangerous in those days. Especially when it involved transporting large sums of money, which I'm sure they were transporting. So you see the willingness and the availability that that servants of the Lord Jesus Christ need to have in in finding that uh, leading of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, Barnabas and Saul were not only serving the Lord, but they were also serving the church. Now you would think that I'm saying the same thing, but you know what? A lot of people don't see it that way. Some people say, I only serve the Lord. I don't serve the church. I serve the Lord. Folks, we are to serve the Lord and we are to serve the church. Why? Because the church is the body of Christ. So they were also serving the church. They were vitally involved in their local fellowship, and while they were leaders in that local fellowship, they were also submitted to one another. Not doing their own thing, but in this case, God's will. I believe there's too many people who want to go out and do their own thing, you know, as if to say they hear from God alone in in an exclusive way that nobody else does. And so they think that they have the freedom to go about and do things uh, that uh, that they say God is telling them. But but if it doesn't involve the body of Christ, if it doesn't involve uh, the aspect of submitted leadership and submitting to leadership, there's a major problem. Do you notice that Barnabas and Saul submitted to leadership here and doing what they did? Go back to read chapter 11 and look at how we see them coming back and in, in, in accomplishing that ministry. And that's the third thing we want to note here. Note that they fulfilled their ministry. How many people say today, they go out and say, I'm, I'm serving the Lord doing this and that, I don't have to serve the church. And then and, and all of a sudden, you know, you don't hear about them or see them anymore and you wonder, well, where'd they go? They never fulfilled the ministry because God never called them. I'll talk about that a little bit more later. But the point is, Barnabas and Saul went out serving the Lord, serving the church, and they fulfilled their ministry. In other words, they followed through and they were faithful. They followed through and they were faithful. Now, the value of following through is significant because anybody can start well in the ministry. And the sad thing is, many people have started well in the ministry, and then they have crashed and burned, and they have not finished well. Following through in the things that God calls us is a very important aspect of serving the Lord. We can start well, but it's the finishing that matters. It's finishing that matters. I want you to turn to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4 for just a moment. And the Apostle Paul now, coming to the end of his ministry, and he finished well, by the way. The Apostle Paul, coming to the end of his ministry, is encouraging his son in the faith, Timothy, who has had struggles in the ministry. He began well in in Ephesus, you know, as Paul sent him there. But as a young man, he had to deal with gathering the church together, having a lot of people older than him telling him what to do, and and not respecting him as far as his youth is concerned, possibly, and whatnot. For, For him to get to a point in his own ministry that there was a lot of discouragement, and that's what this second letter to Timothy is about is encouraging him to stir up the gifts that were in him not to stand upon that fear but he wasn't given a a spirit of fear but of power, love and of a sound mind so Paul is reminding him of these things but I want you to notice here in verses 1-5 through of what he says he says to Timothy I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom he says preach the word be ready in season and out of, in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. In other words, if they have been given sound doctrine but they're not enduring it, they're not finishing well. He says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires. 
Because they have itching ears. They will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth. And be turned aside to fables. And I hate to say this. But in the day and time in which we live. Many people are putting aside the gospel. And they're putting aside the Bible. And and the word of God. And they're going toward fables. And doing things that are not in the scriptures. And saying that this is the spiritual uh, lift that they need today. Because they can't find it in the word of God. Anyway, Paul goes on in verse 5 and he says, But you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. And notice the last exhortation. Fulfill your ministry. In other words, finish well. Fulfill your ministry. Follow through. Follow through with what God has called you to do. And the second thing is faithfulness. You see, I mentioned that they followed through and they were faithful. And faithfulness, it goes even beyond following through. Faithfulness goes beyond following through. It is to be our attitude while following through. It is coming to grips with the fact that everything we do in serving the Lord is for Him. And we should therefore do all with the greatest thought with the greatest planning and preparation and care. One who faithfully follows through will be in a position to find the leading of the Holy Spirit and the leading of the Lord for future guidance and for future direction. And so think of those three things. Following through. Be faithful. Finish well. Fulfill your ministry. All we've learned in one verse by the actions of Barnabas and Saul. And with this in mind, we enter into chapter 13. Verse 1. Now, in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. You should notice immediately that Barnabas and Saul were among the teachers and prophets in Antioch. It certainly appears that these men, all five mentioned here, were the spiritual leaders in the church at Antioch. And it begins with with Barnabas. Barnabas, the great encourager, who had brought Saul of Tarsus alongside him. When many others were afraid of Saul, Barnabas took him alongside and he mentored him in the ministry. Barnabas was the one sent by the church in Jerusalem to help out the growing revival in Antioch. That's how Barnabas ends up in Antioch and with Saul. And then there's Simeon. Simeon of A Jewish name. Here was a a person who had a Jewish name and a Roman nickname. His Roman nickname was Niger, which means black, suggesting that he was more than likely African. There are those who suggest that this person was actually Simon the Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, the man who carried the cross of Jesus. When you look at Mark 15, verse 21, it makes you wonder why it is that this man is named as he is in three Gospels. Three of the four Gospels names him. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian. And that uh, distinction of being a Cyrenian is important too in just a moment. The father of Alexander and Rufus, making sure that we know who this person is, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. In other words, to bear Jesus' cross. And it is quite possible that this Simeon is the same Simon from Cyrene. When you look at Lucius, the third person mentioned, he is from Cyrene. Cyrene was a city on the north coast of what is modern Libya in 
Africa, who may have been one of the founding members of the church in Antioch, being that it was started by men of Cyprus and Cyrene, and may have also been present at Jerusalem, in Jerusalem at Pentecost. And not just Lucius, but even Simeon as well. When you go back to Acts chapter 11, verses 19 and 20, when it talks about the scattering of the Christians out of Jerusalem because of the persecution, well, it says in verse 19, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And you begin to connect the dots, as it were, and you go back all the way to uh, uh, Pentecost, when, when the Holy Spirit came upon the 120, and, and Peter then, after that, went out and preached to the people who were wondering what was going on, and he was making it clear uh, to them that it was the Spirit of God coming down upon the church, and, uh, and then he preached Christ. And 3,000 people came to the Lord that day. Many of them, of course, were from many different regions, not just from Jerusalem, but there were many Jews that had scattered out and, and had now come back. And, and so it is quite possible that, uh, that these two men, Simeon and Lucius, were not only in Jerusalem at that time, but were also uh, there at Pentecost and may have even come to know the Lord at Pentecost. So it's, it's, it's an interesting thing as we see how God is putting together the church and the leadership in Antioch. And then there's another person named Manaean. And it is thought that this man was either an intimate friend or uh, an adopted foster brother of Herod Antipas, who is called here Herod the Tetrarch, the one who had John the Baptist killed. Uh, but the... Uh, the wording is very clear that this was someone who, who was, uh, was actually brought up with and therefore was more than likely a foster brother of Herod. It's interesting that his name is actually a Greek form of the Jewish name Menachem, which means comforter. And so you had not only an encourager in Barnabas, but you had a comforter in the person of Menaean. And then lastly, of course, Saul who we all know as the Apostle Paul. These were the leaders of that church, and they were called prophets and teachers. And the distinctions aren't made as to who was the prophet and who was the teacher, though some believe that the first three mentioned were the prophets and the last two were the, were the teachers, but you know, we're not altogether sure as to how that uh, came about. But in any event, as we look at verse 2 then, we begin to see the activity taking place. Uh, it says, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said. It's important to remember that the Holy Spirit is a person, not some kind of an entity, not some kind of a force or thing, but a person. Because only persons can say things. And so I think that is very clear. It, it's, it's a reminder of what we saw back in Acts chapter 5, when the Holy Spirit said to Ananias and Sapphira concerning their, their particular problem there in the church. But nonetheless, again, it is to remind us of the Holy Spirit taking an active part in the church and speaking, therefore being a person, in this particular case, the third person of the uh, one true God. Now, the call of the Lord for Barnabas and Saul came as they were ministering to the Lord. Ministering to the Lord. It's interesting that the word ministered here in our text is the Greek word leturgeo, which, and, and I pronounce it and I say it because it, it's the word from which we get the English word liturgy. Interesting. Now, you know, today liturgy for us is, is some sense of a yearly order of the way you know, some particular denominations may, may follow a, a calendar to uh, celebrate certain Christian events. For example, there's, there's uh, those who would say that Advent, of course, begins at the beginning of December and, and goes four weeks before uh, the birth of Christ at Christmas. And then, and then there's this 
ethereal area between Christmas and 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 the start of uh, you know the period where we will where, where Christians will celebrate you know Easter and and uh, you know this month or we're going to celebrate Easter relatively early sometimes in April sometimes in March this time it's very early but all that's decided through some sense of you know I don't know I'm not here to explain all of that all I'm saying is liturgy from that standpoint is not what liturgy is here okay so liturgy simply means the order of of service in a church. That was what that word meant. Literally and simply, it means the order of service in a church. But it doesn't mean just church services, but it also uh, was for overseeing that everything was done orderly to the glory of God. That word meant that everything was to be overseen so that everything in the church service was done to the glory of God. So what it's, it's, the word suggests is that ministers were to go about their service with the same kind of commitment and zeal as the priests and Levites who served with the sacrifices and sacred rituals in the tabernacle and or the temple. But it also suggests something else. It suggests that they were having a public service. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, they were in a public service. And that word is giving us that suggestion. And it is in that public service that the Holy Spirit speaks to them and says, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. But what was most important now to observe in that particular job description is the two-letter word, two. Not two, the number, but T-O. They ministered to the Lord. You see that? You see it? Now you're looking at me. Don't, don't look at me. You're not going to see it on the... It's not on the T.O. here on my head. <laughs> you see it in your Word? In your Bibles? They ministered to or unto the Lord? They ministered to the Lord. Ministry was done to bring the Lord glory. Ministry was done to bring the Lord glory. We, we may want to say that we minister for the Lord. Now, all I'm going to say here right now is, is give you some perspective. I just want to give you some perspective. We may want to say that we minister for the Lord, which means that we are ministering to people. That leads to being burdened, by the way. I just want to give you an idea of this perspective. If we say that we minister for the Lord, that means that we minister to people, and that leads to being burdened when people flake out, become fickle, or let us down. On the other hand, if we minister to the Lord, we are then ministering for the people. Different perspective. But please follow through with me. Bear bear with me as I'm trying to make this point here. If we minister to the Lord, we are then ministering for the people. If we do and say what the Lord leads us to, if we are obedient in doing and saying what the Lord leads us to, then we can be blessed regardless of the results. Regardless of whether people listen to us or or pay attention to us or not. Because the bottom line is not to please men. The bottom line is to please the Lord. So you see, I just wanted to give you that perspective. And, and, And actually, the Apostle Paul gives us a good understanding of that perspective. When we read in Galatians chapter 1 verse 10, he says, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I've still pleased men... I would not be a bondservant of Christ. And I think that that last statement is, is, is quite significant in this point. For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. The fact of the matter is, we are to minister to the Lord. And for the people. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul adds to this thought. He says, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. And and so I think that one little word gives us a great perspective of our service to the Lord. Because as part of, of their service to the Lord, as we see in our text, they also fasted. 
They also fasted, suggesting that they, they had a sense of urgency about something, a need to seek God in a special way by denying their flesh. To some extent, we do that ourselves when we gather together, especially on Sunday mornings. We're, we're setting aside all those things that our flesh may oftentimes hunger for, or you know, that our, fresh, our flesh may crave, whatever. We set that aside to be here, to worship the Lord. Sometimes we may go deeper into that aspect of fasting and not want to take anything, you know, physically, at least till later, just so that we can have our focus, especially in a time of, of necessity. And I'm not going to talk a lot about fasting today because while Jesus did not emphasize fasting very much, he did, but not very much, except in his own practice, there are passages that show the place of, uh, the place of fasting, even in our day and time. Take, for example, what, what happened when, when the apostles were, were given a, a test of, of their own faith and, and someone brought to them a, a child who, who, was, uh, who was epileptic and, and, and the disciples couldn't do anything about that. We pick up the, that thought in Matthew 17, verse 18. It says, And Jesus rebuked the demon. It came out of him and the child was cured from that very hour. And then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief. He begins, of course, with their unbelief. But then he says, for surely I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. There was a necessity to be very discerning about the whole situation. God, uh, Jesus is teaching his disciples this aspect of prayer and fasting on very crucial uh, situations. The Apostle Paul would, would, would also uh, speak to the church concerning uh, that, in particular speaking to married couples when he would say to them in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, do not deprive one another, and others from the, from the intimacies that you are to share, do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. And come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So oh, even in the New Testament, there are some people that say, well, you know, we're not required to fast. Well, no, we're not required, but it's something that is certainly a discipline that uh, uh, we as, as believers in Jesus Christ may use at times. We're going to come to uh, Isaiah 58 pretty soon on Wednesday nights. We're going to deal with that issue of fasting then. Uh, if you're interested, you can come and hear about it then. But the church at the time was fasting during a service. And so the call came when the church was worshiping in a public service and as they were fasting. And they had probably talked about it, set this time aside so that they could pray and seek the Lord for this particular need. And, and the command, by the way, the command given in verse 2 was actually for the church. It wasn't a command to Barnabas and Saul directly. It was for the church. Notice since Barnabas and Saul had already been dealt with individually. They had already been called themselves. They knew what their calling was. I mean, Acts 13, verse 2, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me. He's speaking to the church. Separate to me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Now we need to get back to the prophets and the teachers for just a moment. And I don't want to fail to mention that prophets in the church at that time were used by the Spirit to bring edification, to bring exhortation, to bring comfort or encouragement. It is very important for us to understand that at that time they didn't have what we have today, which is the full counsel of God, the Old Testament and the New Testament. That we have with us always. In those days, they didn't have. If they had the Old Testament with them, certainly they had the scrolls and, and whatnot uh, that were available to them. But the, the, the New Testament hadn't, had yet to be written. And so there they were, as, as prophets, foretelling more, more than, than foretelling, you know, what, what the future is, but, but foretelling, being, being those who are speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to, to the church for exhortation, for edification, and comfort. As, as teachers, they received gifts from the Holy Spirit, which would enable them to teach the Word of God efficiently, effectively, and successfully. 
So with that in mind, this call that came from the Holy Spirit more than likely came through one of the prophets as he received a direct word from the Lord. Could have come through a vision or whatever, but nonetheless they received something from the Lord that was to be spoken. That's why it says the Holy Spirit said. There certainly was a vessel that God was using, but the Spirit was speaking and the Spirit was saying. And so it also may have come by tongues and interpretation as well, because all the gifts of the Spirit were functioning at that time in the church. So we hear, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And at this point, I want to ask you all a question. Let me ask a question here. Were they, speaking of Barnabas and Saul, were they as those who were sent... Or as those who just went? Just think about it. Were they sent? Or were they as those who just went? Who just went on their own? Well, obviously, they were sent. It's important to note that as called by the Lord, Barnabas and Saul were being sent by the Lord. They were called out by name. They were being sent by the Lord. What's important here? Well, the first thing that's important and the most important thing is that their own desires were subordinate to God's work. As those who had been called by God, their own desires were subordinate to whatever God had given them to do. You know, many have been those who who just went on their own, went out on their own. I've talked about them earlier today. Those who go out thinking, you know, well, they don't need any connection or anybody telling them what to do. I hear from just directly me. I got a straight line to the Lord. He just speaks to me. I speak to him. I don't talk to anybody else. I go out and do whatever I want to do. Well, many have been those who just went out on their own and in their own power, experiencing, please listen, experiencing burdens they were unprepared and unequipped to carry and running the risk of hurting the Lord's precious saints. I say that that's happened too many times. People have gone out and confused people because they didn't, they didn't receive a call from the Lord to begin with. They just went on their own. But you know, when you hear the Apostle Paul, and I mentioned Paul because he's, he's involved here. These, these are the things that he's learning in his ministry to share with us as he does in his letters. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, this is what Paul says. He says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. And you'll notice that he says we, not I. He says we. He's talking about us. He's talking about the church. He's talking about our cooperation and our communion and our fellowship in the work that God has called us all to do. We all have various gifts. We all have various works. We all have various things that God calls us to do. Various places where God has called us to go. But you know, each and every one of us, if we have come to know Christ, we have that calling. And we have His Word to confirm it. And we have leadership in the church to confirm and to pray, as we'll see in just a moment in verse 3. But I want to go back to, to, I want to go back to Paul's calling as Saul of Tarsus, because in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, and we're going to come back to Acts 9 at the end, but, but here when, when Ananias is, is being spoken to by the Lord, and, and he's being sent to go get Paul, listen to what the Lord says to Ananias. He says, the Lord said to him, go for he, Paul, or Saul of Tarsus, is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. God is saying, I'm, going to, I'm, I'm calling him. That was the initial call. Or at least part of the initial call. But he says, I will show him how many things he must suffer for my namesake. So you have to understand, this was a serious call to a serious ministry. And we can't take the calling of God lightly. It has to come and it has to be confirmed. So it was a serious call to a serious ministry, and because the command was to the church, they had to release Barnabas and Saul to their new ministry, and so they didn't just pray and send them. They didn't say, you you want to go out there? Okay, let's pray for you. Okay, well, we'll we'll see you later. Bye. It wasn't like that. Look at verse 3. Because the emphasis again is back on the praying and fasting. Then, having prayed or having fasted and prayed, I should say, and laid hands on them and added action here. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. They didn't just send them away. They prayed, they fasted, and then they confirmed. 
You see, this verse implies here that they continued to fast and they continued to pray even after the prophecy was given. And not only that, but they laid hands on them, which was a formal confirmation of their calling and the church's commissioning to this ministry. In other words, they were being sent with the full support of the leadership, <clears throat> the full support of the church, <clears throat> and the full support of the Holy Spirit. This is how we see the church and the Holy Spirit working together. Right here. Because when this was all done, they sent them away. They sent them away. Literally, it says they released them to go. They released them to go. Now, let me tell you, Barnabas and Saul didn't need a committee report. Barnabas and Saul didn't need a demographic survey. They didn't need a marketing review. They only went out with a call and the power of the Holy Spirit. Today, in Christendom, we have church growth experts who write books. And they tell you, you know, if you follow these things, you're going to see things happen. And from time to time, they'll say, well, you know, that's God, that's the Holy Spirit. Well, folks, this is the only book you need. When, you come, when it comes right down to it, this is the only book you need to know what God's will is. Pure and simple. And I'm not trying to come down on people. I, I read books. I read a lot of books. We all do. And I tell you what, we can have the perspective that books help us understand this book, or we can know this book so well that this will help us understand those. I'd rather it be that. That we know God's word so well that when we read somebody else, we'll say, ooh, that doesn't fit with this. Discernment, you see. Discernment. They were released to do whatever God wanted them to do. And they did it obediently. In other words, and you'll just need to pardon my English here, but in other words, they were sent and they went. That's, that's okay. I, I, they, they were sent and they went. Kind of a Johnny Cochran thing, you know. you know. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit type thing. Okay. They were sent and they went. My encouragement to you as, as members of, of Christ's body is first of all, for you to be in a place where God's leading can be found. Be in a place where God's leading can be found. I'm not talking about a location, you know, like here or there. But be in a place here in your heart. Be in a place where God's leading can be found. Where God's Spirit can lead you. How do we know that? By following through. Being faithful. And fulfilling your ministry. Secondly, when you find it, be willing to follow His leading. In other words, and now, pardon my, my English, if you are sent, then you need to went. If you are sent, then you need to went. You need to go. I want to close with, with two pictures of men in the Scriptures. The first picture is that of the prophet Isaiah. The second picture is that of the Apostle Paul. In Isaiah chapter 6, when God calls Isaiah into the ministry, it is at a time when a great king, King Isaiah, died. And Isaiah was given a vision. And we're told that Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the train of his majesty filled the temple. So he's given this vision of, of God's throne. 
And around him flew these angels, these seraphim, as it were, all proclaiming, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And the vision itself brought Isaiah to say these words, Woe is me. In other words, pronouncing judgment upon himself, he says, Woe is me, for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips, for I have seen the Lord of hosts. And it indicates what every one of us would have to say in the presence of a holy God. I'm undone. In other words, that word undone means literally to be disintegrated. Y'all know what integrity means, right? Integrity means to be held together morally with value. With, you know, and, and we, we, we lack so much integrity in, 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 in our society and culture today. And hopefully in the church we have integrity, but we're held together, you know, in truth and honor and honesty. But he says, I'm undone. In other words, I disintegrate. You see the word integrate? It's part of the word integrity, too. To be disintegrated means to be cast into billions of pieces, just falling apart in the presence of God. When we're sinners, that's what happens. That's the very thought, the very idea. But when this happens, we'll notice, and we'll pick up in verse 6 of Isaiah 6, it says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, it says, having in his hand a, a live coal with, uh, which, which he had taken from the tongue or with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it. What was it that he confessed? For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst, amongst the people of unclean lips. And he says, he touched my mouth with it, touched the very place of his sin. And he said, behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away. And your sin purged. And Isaiah goes on to say, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Notice, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Referencing, of course, the fact that our one God is a triune God. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, here am I. Send me. Touched by the coal of the altar. The sin, the, the, the wound was cauterized. It was healed. Now he was ready to serve. For his sin was taken. And now he could serve the Lord. And when God says, who will I send? He says, send me. Send me. Not in a proud way, but in a most humble way. Having seen the Lord. Go hundreds and hundreds of years into the future from that point to a time when a man named Saul of Tarsus, who was a persecutor of the church, Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, a hater of Christians, calling them all blasphemers, wanting to destroy them all and destroy this sect, that had arisen because of that man, Jesus. On his way to Damascus, on that road to go to Damascus to find more Christians, to, uh, to round them up and to take them to their own uh, uh, well-deserved uh, execution and destruction, as it were, or even just punishment, but whatever. Along the way, Jesus meets him. And he meets Jesus. And in Acts 9 verse 4 it says, And he fell to the ground. And he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, and listen carefully to what Paul says. He says, Lord, uh, 
What do you want me to do? He recognizes Jesus. He calls him Lord. His life is changed. Instantly. And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Two separate incidents, two separate people, but the same God calling His servants. Have we come to that place where our sin has been dealt with so that we can be servants of the Lord with good consciences? Or has the Lord had to knock us off our high horse even though we don't know that He was riding a horse? But He was on His high horse proud as He was Arrogant as he was. Has God knocked you off your horse? So why are you persecuting me? Have you answered and said, Lord, forgive me. What must I now do? You see, that has to be a part of, of our experience with Christ. Not only that we come to the salvation that is so free and so rich and so wonderful in Jesus Christ, knowing what He has done for us on the cross, knowing that He died on that cross, taking our sins there, taking our place on that cross, shedding His blood for our forgiveness. Wonderful things. But is it only so that we can just say, I don't have to worry about hell anymore. I don't have to worry about death anymore. Or has your salvation affected you to the point that you said, Lord, thank you for what you've done in my life. Thank you for setting me free from the power of sin and death. Now, Lord, here I am. Send me. Lord, what must I do? I sometimes think that's a question we fall short in asking. Let's not be Christians who are just satisfied with the fact that we're not going to hell. Let's be like all those who, who faced death, who faced, you know, just uh, being persecuted for their faith in saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? The persecuted church that left Jerusalem after Stephen was killed... What did they do? Did they go hide? No, they just went around every other place telling people about Jesus. (laughs) That's what they did. That's what we're called to do. Have you asked a question yet to the Lord? Lord, what must I do? Have you answered the question to the Lord Himself when He asks here, or when He asks, who will go for me? Who will go for us? Have you answered that question? Here am I. Send me. Don't be like those who say, Here am I. Send him. Here am I. Send her. No, here am I. Send me. Jesus is coming. So so many people have not yet found this wonderful peace in knowing Christ. We have it. What are we doing with it? Let's pray.